week. We're going to be in Luke chapter 8. Luke chapter 8 this morning, continuing our series, Jesus for uh, Everyone. Uh, and if you're a guest with us, the way that we started this back in November, uh, right before Christmas, and the way that we do things is we just kind of go verse by verse through books for the most part. And so uh, here we are in July, and it's taken us, it's taken us this long to get through uh, HOS. That's about a chapter a month is the pace that we're going on here. So we should finish this in a couple of years. Um, that's, that's about what we're doing uh, right now. But uh, I think it will pick up uh, a little bit as we, as we start going through here. And actually today we're going to cover uh, a lot of ground. We're not going to finish chapter 8. That will actually come two weeks from now since we won't be here next week. Uh, when we finish chapter 8. But when we started chapter 8, what I told you was that this section of Scripture was a little bit of a hodgepodge of stuff that Luke kind of throws at us. He kind of gives us these, it seems like random stories that are kind of from all over the place. And honestly, whenever I entered into it, that's what I felt like whenever I read it. But the more I've gotten into this, the more I've studied it, the more I've been able to preach through it, the more I realize this is not a hodgepodge at all. I just did not see the thread that was running through that. What I see now is that actually all of chapter 8 pretty much holds together. And so we'll explain what that looks like and, and what is going on here. But Luke is very intentional about what he is uh, saying in this, in this chapter. This morning what I want to show you is how Luke is weaving this narrative together uh, to kind of teach us just a couple of primary truths. And as you open to Luke 8, I want to show you uh, a video, and we'll kind of we'll kind of let it run run behind me. Go ahead and show that video. Like, I don't know how familiar you guys are with these type of videos, right? I don't know how familiar you, you are with these, but these are called unboxing videos. You got who has seen unboxing videos on YouTube? All right, so the rest of you probably have, and you're just lying about it. But um, th- th- this week, Emily got a a package. Uh, she got she got some some new boots that I got her for her. Uh, birthday, and uh, she's just a really nice pair of boots she'd been wanting, uh, got, got a deal, and even though her birthday's not till next week, that, that, that box came in, and I told her, go ahead and open them, you can go ahead and, and, and open these, and there's, there's something about getting a package and then opening that package that you kind of get a, a rush with that, right? And these particular boots that Emily got, they had really paid a lot of attention to detail in the packaging, so it's a really nice package, the, each boot had like its own like like bag that, like not like plastic, but like cotton, like embroidered bag that it was in. You could smell the leather whenever you open it up. There was a personal handwritten note that was there. Um, the unboxing was like really a, a, a cool process. It was an, an impressive experience uh, just because they had paid attention to the, the details. And I'm not sure how much time you have spent on YouTube and seen this type of thing. Now, these are all Apple products, and it's just these videos of these things being opened, right? That's, that's really all that there is, uh, there is to it. And you can find like everything. Uh, you can find just about anything being open. All right, you, you can stop. They, they get the picture. This is what the unboxing videos uh, look like. But, and you can find videos of people opening everything from like shoes to iPhones to chocolate to, to mattresses to baseball cards to toys and some of these videos have hundreds of millions of views, right? Which is crazy, right? Like, like hundreds of millions of views. There's even a, a channel called Unboxing Therapy or Unbox Therapy. And this, this genre is immensely uh, popular. But why? 
Why is it, why is it so popular? Why do so many people go to videos to watch people just open products that you don't own? That you like either can't afford or just haven't decided to, to purchase? Like, they're not your thing. I'm not going to lie. The first time that I ever saw one of these videos, this was a long time ago. Our kids were, were pretty young. And somebody was opening like toys, like that, that's the whole channel was somebody who opens boxes, like they get packages and they open up boxes of toys. And it was some sort of Elmo product, I can't remember exactly what it was. It was something having to do with, with Elmo, and I thought it was one of the dumbest things I had ever seen. I was like, what in the world is this? And this is, it wasn't a toy review, it's just opening a box with a toy in it, and then opening the, pulling the toy out, that's it. That's all there was to it. And I thought it was so uh, dumb just watching some other guy open a toy that you can't have. Uh, and, and my kids were like, hey, watch this. And I'm like, what is this? They're like, yeah, this is like a thing. This is a whole thing out there. And it didn't make any sense to me. But now that I've been sucked into the YouTube black hole like everyone else, uh, I find myself watching some of these videos myself if it's something that I'm interested in, from shoes or electronics or baseball cards. I find myself every now and then watching some of these videos myself because they are very satisfying to watch. Why? Well, I'm not 100% sure all the human psychology that is behind this. I'm not 100% sure what creates all of it. But what I can tell you is there is, at least in a, a small, small fraction of a part, that it gives us something. If just for like a fleeting moment, it gives us something that we are all like longing for, that we are all hoping to get, that we're all chasing, that elusive like tingle. Do you know what I'm talking about? Like when you get a package and you're like, ooh. When, like the, you know, talk, we talk about retail therapy and you go buy something and just that, that momentary, even if it's just for like, like a second, you get just a little bit of that like, oh, that was cool. Like you, you get that for just a second and then it's gone, but it's there for just a minute. You get the moment of anticipation before everything is unveiled uh, and, 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 and you can get that without actually to have, having to purchase the item and for, and for some that, that tingle is very, very tangible. And for others, it's very faint and barely noticeable, but it's there. That, that little dopamine hit is still there that you can get from watching somebody else open a, a box of, of something. And I don't understand how that works, but, but it's there. What is it in humans that makes a, a genre of video like this Fun for us to watch. Why do we get drawn in? And you may be smugly sitting out there thinking, not me. I think that's the dumbest thing ever. And you were right whenever you saw that first video. This is stupid. It is stupid. But, like, whether you get drawn into the YouTube video and the unboxing videos or not, there is something in your life, something, that, like, whenever you, you get it, either you get something in the mail or you participate in something, you, you do something that, that when you experience it, you get that same sense that others get when they open that box. It might be when you climb to the top of a mountain and you're like, well, yeah, that's so much better. Well, maybe it is, but you still get that same thing, right? That same, that same rush on top of a mountain, driving an old car, completing a project around your house, watching a, a ball game, 
Maybe it's when you travel and you go to a national park and you see something that is like majestic that's out there or a, or a big city or whatever. Something is in you that, that kind of you get this like tingle when you experience that like that moment of, wow, would you look at that? That is in all of us because we are all hardwired for it. It is built into our, 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 our physical bodies to be hardwired for things like that. All of these things tap into the same thing. They tap into a sense of awe, to a sense of wonder. Now, I have no sense of awe for an Elmo toy coming out of a box. That does not get me like super excited. But there are other things that I do have a sense of awe about. And you can judge me if you want. I'll judge you right back because you've got it too, right? Like we've all got that, that, that in there. We, we have this sense of awe, the sense of wonder. They, they are quite literally, whatever that thing is for you, it is quite literally awesome. It is awe-inducing. Even if it's just in the smallest fraction for the smallest second, you have that moment. And the reality is that the human heart is constantly in search of anything that will quench that thirst in our hearts. And that's why these videos are so popular. That's why they get so many views. Because that, that thirst that we have is massive. And those videos are just a little droplet. And so you have to consume a lot of it. You have to get a ton of it in order to somehow quench that thirst and, 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 and satisfy yourself. It's, it's just a fleeting fraction of a second. It's what makes all kinds of different things. It's, it's what makes sports so addictive for some people. It's why some people don't understand sports fandom at all. And other people are like, I don't understand you people who don't understand sports fandom at all. The people who understand sports fandom is you get that hit when your team wins. You get that sense of like, yes. And then when your team wins big, it's that sense of awe and that sense of wonder. It's what makes relationships, especially new relationships, so intoxicating. They are full of those moments of awe and wonder. And it's what makes marriage so difficult because the more you know about someone, typically the less awe-inspiring they are. It's not always true, but that's generally true, right? Like the more you get to see behind the curtain, the more you're like, hey, that's, I thought that was a good trade. It is not. Uh, but that's how that works. And, and that tingling feeling kind of goes away. And, 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 you're, and then you're left with like the question of now what? Now how do we get forward? How do we move forward in a relationship when, when, when that kind of electricity is not there. But that tingling feeling is what we are all on the hunt for, constantly. God designed us for that. But the question that I have, and the question that Luke is going to point us to this morning is, what happens whenever the thing that should create that electricity, that should produce that in your heart, you completely miss it? Like it's there and it has no impact on you whatsoever. If you have something in front of you that should produce a level of awe you've never experienced before, and instead you completely miss it. That's what Luke's going to teach us about today. He's going to show us how we make sure we don't miss it, and the proper response when we do find it. So we're going to look at two stories here. We're going to look at one where Jesus calms the storm, just 
totally stealing my thunder here. Uh, no pun intended. He calms the storm, and then we're going to look at one where he, he heals uh, a, a demon-possessed man is possessed by likely thousands of demons, which is just, I don't know how that works, but that's, that's what the story is here, right? And we're going to see as we go through this, you're going to have a ton of questions that I'm not going to answer, because that is not Luke's point. He's not trying to answer these questions. He's trying to teach us a very specific point. So let's just get into it. Luke chapter 8, verse 22. One day he got into a boat with his disciples, that's Jesus, and he said to them, let's go across to the other side of the lake. So they set out, and as they sailed, this is not like Lake Cherokee. This is like way big lake, right? This is way out there. This is like, think, think like a, a small sea, right? Like you're going to be out there for a, a while. And they said, let's, 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 uh, let's go to the other side of the lake. So they set out, and as they sailed, he, he, he fell asleep. And a windstorm came down on the lake, and they were filling with water and were in danger. And they went and they woke him, saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. And he awoke and rebuked the wind and the raging waves, and they ceased, and there was a calm. And he said to them, Where is your faith? And they were afraid, and they marveled, saying to one another, Who then is this, that he commands even the winds and the water, and they obey him? Now, we have to put our Bible study skills to the test very quickly here. If we approach this passage wrong, we will miss Luke's point of why he has this story right here where he does in his narrative. And as a result, we will miss the awe that should be inspired in us. Now, we've talked about this before, but it's been a long time since I've said it, so I'll say it again. Uh, when we read the Bible, we should never begin with the question, what does this mean for me? If you begin with that question, you will almost always get the wrong answer. You will draw conclusions from a text that are not intended to be drawn, and you will end up with some very bad theology. Because you will, you will put, make theology uh, based on, on, on things that the, the biblical writers never intended to uh, give us. So if you start with, how does this apply to me, you end up in a very wrong place. There's a time for that question, but there's work that has to be done first. It has to be informed by other things. Uh, for instance, if we start reading this story and saying, awesome, Jesus calmed the storms. He calmed the storms. And that means that I can trust Jesus to do that in my life too. So many times things seem to get out of control and life is spinning and going crazy and it is so difficult and, and things get dicey. But all I need to do is ask Jesus to help me out and all will be well. That's an example of how not to study the Bible. That's an example of how reading the Bible wrongly leads you to wrong conclusions because that is an untrue application. Now, there are other questions we need to ask first. Namely, what did Jesus want his original hearers to learn from this story? What did Luke want his original readers to learn from this passage? And if we ask those questions and we start in that place, along with a host of other questions about historical context and literary context and others, once we do all of that work, now listen, this doesn't mean that you can't do this. Some people hear things like that and they're like, oh, well, it's just too difficult to study the Bible. I, just, there's, I, I can't do all that stuff. You can do all that. It's just a matter of whether you want to do all that. So once we do all of that, once we do all of that work, uh, then we can ask the question, what about me? 
But it's not until we answer all that other stuff first. And I'm going to run out of time if I don't speed up here. So I'm going to try to answer those questions in kind of one fell swoop, but not yet. The first clue that, that, that we have that, that that's not the best way to understand the story is there's no clear reason why this story is here if we read it by itself. Luke tells us what happens, but he gives us no application for it. He, he points us to nothing. All we have is the simple story of this happened to the disciples. We have to supply all the instruction and application there. But if we set it in its context, it will rem- it, we'll be reminded of why it's here and we'll be able to draw something from it. Again, I'll get to that at the end. But for now, let's just take the facts of the story. These guys are fishermen. These guys know how to handle a boat. These guys have been on this sea. They know it better than, better than you know any piece of land. They know that, that, that water, right? They know it well. They are used to being out there. They know how to make a quick jaunt across the Sea of Galilee. And this sea is it's known even today for very quickly weather turning bad in a hurry. Uh, it's, it's just kind of what, it, what it's known for. And this is what has happened, uh, what has happened there. And these professional fishermen who were very familiar with boats uh, and, and the sea very quickly begin to realize that they are in over their head, almost quite literally. They are very much in trouble. And Jesus is somehow asleep through all of this. I'm sure there's some sort of like spiritual, sto- like spiritual application I can draw from there about how God never panics even though we do and... I'm sure all that's there, but the main thing that I'm amazed about is that he's asleep. That in the midst of of pure chaos on deck, he is completely asleep. They are taking on water, about to drown, and he's about to sleep through it. I think that that is just uh, amazing. These men who were not afraid of water were very much afraid here in this moment. So they come and they get Jesus, they wake him up, and they're, they're like, hey, this is happening. And I don't know what they expected there, right? Because what we're going to see is that even though what Jesus did is very much what they wanted, they clearly didn't expect it to happen the way that it did. So Jesus hops up on deck, tells the winds and the waves to stop, and the world that was spinning out of control comes to complete stillness in a moment. He looks at them and he asks them where their faith was. He he looks at them and and, and he says, he looks at them and he says, where is your faith? Why, why is it that you guys are freaking out like this? And then, what would you expect the disciples to do at that point? What would you expect Luke to report as their emotion that they felt? Now remember, Luke's not there. So Luke's getting word-of-mouth testimony from somebody. Likely, likely Peter, that, that's most people's best guess. But he's getting uh, like a, a word-of-mouth testimony from somebody. And so they're recounting exactly what has happened. And so what they tell Luke is that, what, what would you expect? That they were overjoyed that they were now safe? That they were super excited about what they had just seen? That they were rejoicing and high-fiving each other? That they weren't at the bottom of the Sea of Galilee? Is this what you would expect? It's what I would expect. But joy is not the emotion that the disciples remember when they're talking to Luke. It's fear. After what they had just witnessed, where Jesus steps up and says, Peace be said, stop wind, stop waves, and everything comes to complete stillness, 
They were not filled with joy. They were filled with fear. That's our first clue that there's something going on here. They hadn't ceased to be afraid. Their fear had simply moved from the sea and the waves to the guy that they thought was a miracle worker and a rabbi. But they're very quickly learning he's even more than what they had thought. They had just gotten to know a little bit of who he is. And then they asked the key question. The key question that we must ask too. Who is it that commands the winds and the water and even they obey him? I think it's interesting that fear is their response. Wonder. Awe. They are taken aback by what they have seen. They can't even rejoice that they are alive because what they have seen has left them so awestruck. And their question is telling, and we'll come back to it here in just a minute, but I want to read the next story too as quickly as I can. So like I said, I'm not going to get into too much detail this morning, even though I'm sure some of you would like for me to. Um, So Luke chapter 8, verse 26. Then they sailed to the country. of the, So this is after the storm has, has settled and Jesus, I assume, goes back to sleep. And he's like, just get me back over there. They sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. And when Jesus had stepped out on land, there met him a man from the city who had demons. For a long time he had worn no clothes and he had not lived in a house but among the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me. For he he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For For many a time it had seized him. He was kept underground and bound with chains and shackles, but he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. And Jesus then asked him, What is your name? And he said, Legion, for many demons had entered him. And they begged him not to command him to depart into the abyss. Now a large herd of pigs was feeding on the hillside, and they begged him to let him enter, uh, to enter these. So he gave them permission. Then the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs, and the herd rushed down to the steep bank uh, into the lake, and they drowned. Now there's a lot there. There's a lot that, that, that our natural like, inclination is like, what is that about? What about this part? But I don't want to get too bogged down in the details and, again, ask questions that Luke is not trying to answer. Why did Jesus listen to the demons and let them go into the pigs? I have no idea, honestly. I really don't know exactly why. I could give you a few, example, uh, a few answers, a few things that commentators have said, but they don't really agree. There's a lot of different theories about what is going on there. Why did the pigs run into the sea? Did the pigs do that themselves? Did the demons do that and, and commit some sort of like, like suicide? And, I, and I'm sure there's some sort of like joke that I can make there about swine suicide, but I couldn't figure out what it was. So I'll let you figure out what that joke is there. Uh, but there's a host of other things in this story that I'm not completely sure about. But there are some things that I am sure about and that I know that Luke is drawing our attention to. So again, let's go back to the facts. Demon-possessed man here, not the first time that we've seen one. You can go back to Luke 4 when we first talked about this. If you want to get my take on demon possession and the way some of that works, then you can go back and listen to that sermon from Luke uh, 4. But this time it's not one measly demon. It's, it's a bunch. Now, it doesn't say here in Luke how much this is, but this, this story is recounted in, uh, in uh, all the Gospels except for John. Uh, and it does say in Mark that about 2,000 pigs is what ran into the sea. That's a lot of pigs. 
Uh, and that's what ran into... So, so, so make of that what you will. Does that mean there was 2,000 demons in this guy? I don't know. Maybe. Seems like that would make a lot of sense. But this guy is clearly out of his mind. He's naked. Uh, he's, been, he's homeless. He's living in the caves and the tombs away from the city because he could not be in the city. He was a major problem for the townspeople. He had been banished out there. But Jesus shows up in this town and he meets this guy, this guy he had never met in a town he had never been to. This naked guy walks up to him and immediately this man begins to speak. And he wants to know why Jesus has shown up there of all places. Why did Jesus pull up on that shore? Why did he end up right there? He wants to know why he's there. But this is not like an antagonistic bunch of demons who are trying to pick a fight. These are demons that are clearly scared. They are very nervous about what has happened now that Jesus has come on the scene. They immediately begin to beg Jesus not to hurt them, not to torment them. They aren't taunting Jesus. They aren't aren't egging him on. They aren't looking for a fight. They're terrified of Jesus who had not even introduced himself yet. Luke tells us that this man had struggled off and on for some of the time, uh, but before this demon had had now finally taken hold of him. And then Jesus shows up, talks to the demon, the demon trembles, begs, and then ultimately does whatever Jesus says. He has no fight in him. He puts up, the, the demon puts up no resistance. Jesus speaks All the demons obey. All 2,000 of them, if that's how many were in this man. Then the pigs take off, commit their suicide. We ask all kinds of questions, and then we miss the main point. The main point here is that Jesus spoke, and the demon had no choice but to listen and obey. He had no choice. All of them had no choice but to do exactly what Jesus said. And before Jesus even spoke a word, all of those demons knew that was the case. They knew whatever Jesus commanded them to do, they were going to have to do. They were resigned to the fact that they had no other choice. There's one more group of people and we need to see their reaction. This is verse 34. When the herdsmen saw what had happened, they fled and told, and told it in the city and in the country. And then the people went out to see what had happened, and they came to Jesus, and they found the man whom the demons had gone, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind. And they were overjoyed, excited, happy for this man. Nope. They were afraid. And those who had seen it told, uh, seen it, told them how the demon-possessed man had been healed. Then all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked him to depart, asked Jesus to leave from them, for they were seized with great fear. So he got into the boat and returned. And the man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with them, but Jesus sent him away, saying, Return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away, proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. So the guys that were watching the, the pigs, the guys, the herdsmen that were watching the pigs, freak out. They run into the city to tell what this Jewish preacher had done to all of their pigs and to this man. And when the town starts to gather around and see what happened, they are no longer worried about the pigs. doesn't say that they react to what happened to the pigs at 
all. They saw that this man, uh, they saw this man that they had only known as like a stark, naked, raving lunatic, uh, now calmly sitting and laughing with the disciples at the feet of Jesus. And they were shocked. And just like the disciples before, it says twice, they were filled with fear. So much so that as the word got out of what Jesus had done and how Jesus had overcome this man and these demons, the stronger the call grew for Jesus to get out of town. Their response to seeing what Jesus had done was, get out of here. We do not want you, you Jewish preacher. Get away from us. We are scared of you. And so that's what Jesus did. He left. He walked away. But not before coming back to our new friend and telling him to go to his home, restart some relationships that that had been gone for a long time, and tell your story to this Gentile land, to these non-Jewish people. Tell them what God, what Yahweh had done, what Jesus had done. And so this man goes away skipping and telling everybody that he sees about what had happened. It's fascinating, isn't it? You'd think the disciples would be full of joy, but they were full of fear. You'd think the townspeople would rejoice at the, at, at the very least that this man would no longer be a nuisance. You would think they would be excited about that. No indication of that. They too are terrified. The thing that is activating in their hearts in that moment is the thing that their hearts crave. Awe and wonder. They had Jesus right in front of them. And that feeling activates and what happens is, at least in the case of the townspeople, they missed it. They completely missed what was in front of them. A month or so ago, uh, right at the end of school, right when school ended, my family had a chance to go to uh, New York and see the, the Statue of, of Liberty. Uh, we got a chance to do that. Emily and I had been before, but we got a chance to take the kids and go this time. And uh, we've been awestruck both of the times that we've been there. If you ever have a chance, you should do it, and you should, you should plan way ahead. But if you get a chance, you should go up into the crown. This is a picture of us up in the crown, the, the, the top of the Statue of Liberty up there. That's a picture looking out the windows. That's the, the torch up there. You can see the, 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 the spike of her crown up there. It's just a really cool experience. It's, it's, it's a very cool thing to be able uh, to do. It is, uh, it, it is legitimately pretty awe-inspiring to, to, to stand there, to take it in, uh, this massive statue and consider all that it represents of what our country should long to be, what our country should want to be, what our country once upon a time was trying to be, uh, and to, 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 to stand for, for all, all the history behind it, all that goes into it. It really is. I, I love going up and looking out over the skyline of Manhattan. The whole thing is really an awe-inspiring uh, experience. And both times we've been there, but I especially noticed that this last time that we had been there, uh, we were overrun by what I think is the most, the worst possible thing to have around you in a moment when you're trying to be contemplative and, 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 and feel deeply and have that awe-inspiring moment. We were overrun with the, the worst possible thing. It's like a middle school field trip. 
it was no good. It's either middle school or high school, I don't know. But it was one of those two. And like the whole time, we're just like, which way is the field trip going? Because we're going the opposite way. That is not the direction that we want to be. Because here we are in the inside the Statue of Liberty, reading things, looking at things, getting ready to go up this tight little spiral staircase, standing and posing in front of uh, the, the, the Statue of Liberty, looking at this thing, considering all of these things. And you have these kids just running around you. The only posing that is happening there is a, a few of them for, for selfies, but they're not even taking selfies with the statue behind them. It's just like... It's just selfies of themselves, just like they would take like in their classroom if they were home. Like it's just it, it, that, that's all that they're doing, and the rest of the posing is just the, the posing of awkward teenagers trying to prove they're not really as awkward as they probably really are. Right? That's the rest of what is happening. It's it's the it's the the social jockeying and the trying to to, to find your place and all that kind of stuff. They are paying zero attention to the Statue of Liberty. None. Like they might just for a moment look up and be like, ah, that's cool. And then it's right back to the thing that they're doing, not paying any attention to it at all. They're so busy trying to do everything else and convince everyone else around them and themselves that they are actually worth like being around that they, they don't have time to even consider the weightiness of what is in front of them. That thing, the Statue of Liberty in that moment should create awe in them. And they were totally missing it. Completely missing it. We seek out that awe in so many places and experiences. Travel, YouTube videos, relationships. I could literally go on the rest of the day and talk about different things that we seek out that awe-inducing experience and how we do that. So much stuff that we chase after to get that moment of awe. Yet Jesus is right here. He's right in front of us. And we just miss him. There's no awe there at all. In fact, Jesus is just kind of that guy in our back pocket that we call on when we need help. There's no awe there. We're not, we're not awe-inspired when we read the pages of Scripture. We read the pages of Scripture and say, how does this help me? How, what do I get out of this? I, I read the, the, the storm being calmed, and I'm like, all right, Jesus, how are you going to do that for me? I'm not inspired to awe over what Jesus has done. I'm trying to figure out how Jesus can do it for me. But the disciples who were there, they were terrified. Because they saw who Jesus was. They began to know a little bit more of what he could do. The townspeople who saw what Jesus could do, who saw the change in this, uh, this, this demon-possessed man, the townspeople, they were terrified. They felt that all. And they knew that that was who was in front of them. This is Luke's point in this whole chapter. We look at those townspeople and we say, how could you tell Jesus to go away? How could you push him away? 
But the truth is, we are far too often like the townspeople, begging Jesus to leave because he's making us nervous. Because we're scared of what he might do. Or more likely, we just leave. And we go somewhere else and we hide and we hope Jesus wouldn't find us there. This is Luke's point in the whole chapter. Do you remember the lesson from the first half of the chapter? It's the, the, the lesson that uh, in the first half that, that, that followed by application in the second with a little hinge in the middle. Okay? That's what's happening in this chapter. For you, uh, for you Bible study people, you, you, you Bible study nerds, uh, this might be a, a chiasm here, right? So a chiasm is like a scripture sandwich. So you've got the bread on the top, the bread on the bottom, and in the middle, you've got the, the truth that is trying to be driven home. It's not a perfect one, so I'm not 100% sure, but it's pretty close. Either way, what you have at the very beginning is Luke making, introducing a point. You have the middle that is the point that's driven home. And then at the end, you have the application and the, the explanation of uh, that point that was at the, the beginning. So the hinge for us, the meat of the sandwich, is in verse 18 of Luke chapter 8. Another way to think about this is like the way that we write, the way we're taught to write, is you put the thesis for a paper at the very beginning of the paper, right? In the introductory paragraph. You, you, you say what you're going to talk about, then you talk about it, and then the conclusion is you talk about what you just talked about, right? That's, that's what, how we're taught to write a paper. That's not how the biblical writers typically work. The way they typically worked is the thesis is the middle. And then everything builds to it and then flows from it, right? So that's what happens here in chapter 8 and verse 18. The center of the passage. Take care then how you hear. For to the one who has, more will be given. And from the one who has not, even what he thinks that he has will be taken away. And then the immediate twin to that is verse 21 that we saw last week whenever Jesus' family was trying to get to him. And then Jesus says, My mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and then do it. So why is all this together here in Luke 8? What is Luke driving home here? So before we can, we can ask, what does this say to us? We need to say, what does this say about God? In this case, what does this say about Jesus and his Word. It teaches us that God's word has an authority that we cannot match or really even comprehend. Even the winds and the, and the waves obey him. The demons don't challenge him. They, they, just, they just beg to go to the pigs because that's the best they can get. They know they can't, they can't fight against him. They're just kind of like, well, we can't fight this one. We just need to take the L and move on here. This is kind of where the demons are when Jesus shows up. The authority of the word is put on display in both of these stories. So now what? The disciples are scared, but as we'll see, they, all but one, stay with him. The townspeople are scared, but they tell Jesus to go away, to get out of here. This is the application there in verse 18. To those who have, more will be given. The disciples keep seeking. They hear from God. They honor. They see the power of the word. And they keep coming back for more. This is Peter, right? Whenever Jesus says, will you too leave Peter? And Peter says, where will we go? You're the one who has the words of life. They just keep coming back. Even when they don't understand half of what Jesus is saying, they keep coming back. 
the other part of verse 18, to those who have not, even what they have will be taken away. The townspeople got a dose of Jesus, and they said, that's enough, we're scared. And so Jesus left, taken away on his sailboat. They missed what they should have been in awe over. The whole point in this chapter is showing the power and the authority of Jesus, the power and the authority of the word. And it's telling us, be careful how you listen. Be careful how you hear. Do you remember this from just a few weeks ago? This is the whole point. Be careful how you hear. Be careful how you listen. The winds and the waves obey. The demons obey. What about you? What about you? When was the last time that you had that sense of awe about Jesus? That you legitimately approached him with a level of awe that drove you, that borders on fear. Yes, we are in a personal relationship with Jesus. Yes, he calls us friend, which is, which is amazing. But don't let, that, don't let that reduce your awe. Don't let that steal away the, the truth of who he is. When was the last time that you heard Jesus speak and you said, more, Jesus, I need more. I need more of you, Jesus. I need to hear you speak. I need to hear you more. That's what, that's what the guy who was healed, we'll, we'll call him Legion because that's the only name that we're given even though he doesn't have the demons. That's what this guy, he says, Jesus, I need more from you. And Jesus says, I want you to go tell everyone what's happened to you. You know, he shifted from what he said just a few weeks before. You know, he's in Gentile territory now. When he was in Jewish territory, he, he tells him, don't tell, don't tell everyone what's happened because he knew that that was going to create a, a firestorm. But over in Gentile territory, he's like, go tell everybody. Go tell them who Jesus is. Go tell them who set you free. Go tell them who's, who, who, whose word has power and authority. And this guy's like, I'll do it, but I want to hear more, Jesus. When was the last time that that was your posture? Not, I need more from you, Jesus. Come help me and do this thing, which that's a totally appropriate prayer. But too often, that's our only prayer. When was the last time that you said, I need to hear more? Versus... I think what is probably our typical attitude, I know, I know the one that I default to, I'm good today, Jesus. I'm just going to watch an unboxing video and I'll get my hit that way. I'm just going to go buy something and unbox it myself. And I'll get my hit that way. I'll get my awe fix in this relationship. I'll get my wonder fix at Neyland Stadium. I'll get my fix over here or over here or over here. I don't need you, Jesus, because you scare me in what you might say, and I'll have to obey. I'll get my fix somewhere else. We don't tell Jesus that, but that's what we do. Because it's so much easier. It sounds crazy to say, I'll get my awe fixed by watching an unboxing video, doesn't it? It sounds ridiculous when you say it out loud. But that's what we do. That's how most of us 
spend our lives unboxing one all replacement after another. And each time we do it, every single time we do it, every time we find a substitute, we tell Jesus, I'm good. You can move along. Be careful. Because you may find out, like the townspeople, that he might just get in his boat and move along. This is what I said a few weeks ago. Jesus will speak to you until he doesn't. And you don't know when that last time will be. Today is the day of salvation. Now is the time to hear his voice and repent. Now is the time to hear and to apply. Now is the time to obey. And if it's been a long time since you've heard his voice, then I would encourage you today to spend some time in prayer saying, God, I just want to hear from you. Let me hear from you again. Demons hear and obey. The wind hears and obeys. The waves hear and obey. What about you? If you hear the voice of God today, will you obey? This is the point that Jesus is making. And Jesus says, if you will do that, then you will be part of my family. More my family than my brothers and sisters. But if you don't, at some point he'll hop back in his boat and he'll move on. Let's pray. Father, this morning it is our confession that far too often we are chasing after so many replacements. That we are standing at your feet, we are standing right in front of you, we are standing right there, and we are taking selfies and you're nowhere to be seen. That things that should cause us to fall to our knees and worship you in awe, go right by us. And we have no idea who we are dealing with when we talk about Jesus. Father, will you please produce that awe in us this morning? Will you fix our hearts where they are properly in awe of what they should be? Help us to not be like those that just walk by and completely miss what should produce awe. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.